Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Hamish Geddes, who is a senior associate with Nexus Law Group. Hamish is a specialist construction lawyer, so we have a chat to him about how you can protect yourself if you're a property investor that's building a property or undertaking renovations. Hamish is an accomplished investor as well, so we have a chat about his portfolio, but in general, the ways that construction projects can go south and how to protect yourself from that happening. Here's Hamish. Hamish Geddes, welcome to Geared for Growth. Thanks for having me. So just to, to kick things off, uh, who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm a uh, senior associate at Nexus Law Group. Um, we do primarily, we focus on, uh, in my area, on the built environment. So I do building, construction, civil, um, everything from the front end. So negotiations, contracts, um, uh, all the way to the back end. So a lot of dispute work um, around generally around defects, liquidated damages, um, and trying to resolve those as commercially as I can. That would be a handful, um, I'm guessing. So um, we, we really hope that our listeners maybe never get to meet someone such as yourself, but if they do, we're going to run through some of the issues that, that pop up. Just to get uh, to know you a little bit, what uh, posters were given prime real estate on the bedroom wall as a youngster? Oh, as a youngster, I was pretty much um, in love with surfing. That yep. hasn't really changed. Um, I see Marty next door's got his surfboard on the wall. Yeah, yeah. Hunter Pisses board riders, which we try him as well. So most of it was there. Um, really, uh, you know, Kelly Slater and Mark Lucalupo and those sort of boys. Hockey. Uh, Mark Richards, obviously, because, you know, he was just down the road. Yeah. Um, and they really probably took prime place um, on the wall. Um, but definitely on the bookshelf, there's always been some investment books. My mum would probably attest that was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, yeah. um, Barefoot Investor. Um, so yeah, I sort of got all my, um, I guess, investor knowledge from, from books. Yeah. Um, my parents were very, probably the same as a lot of parents in, in my sort of era, and they were uh, very risk adverse, yep. I would say. Yep. Um, Pay down the home loan, those sort as of things. As fast as you can, and why would you can. borrow if you don't have to? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but they were always encouraging me of doing those sort of things, a little entrepreneurial, little adventures and, and yeah. whatnot that were pretty fun. So, yeah, but definitely looking at things like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and Bed, um, Barefoot Investor, and, and yeah. you know, the realisation of compound interest and what they can do, yeah. including in, in having an asset uh, that continues to grow. Um, definitely spurned my... Um, interest in uh in real estate uh, and it's it's been a a driving force for a fair while so rich dad poor dad that was a huge book for my sort of parents generations i'm, I'm hoping we're roughly the same age you probably carried a bit better than myself so uh, how, how did you start uh, or get started in property investing yourself you're obviously a, a an accomplished investor as well as a lawyer well yeah, I mean, it's really been a, a recent thing. I mean, Rich Dad, Poor Dad pretty much had me when I was about 12 or 13 setting some pretty lofty goals. Yeah, good um, pretty happy to say I've missed all of them completely by about a decade. Right. Um, spent most of my 20s um, at university and then... Um, surfing? Surfing and then trekking <laughs> around the world. So the, the, uh, the investment ideas sort of always fell on the, on the back burner. Um, but... Then I was about six years ago, I sort of thought I'd better, you know, pull myself together. Um, at that stage, real estate was fairly, I guess, cheap, it seemed like it anyway. Yeah. Uh, we were 
my, my current wife and I um, had just moved into a place um, in Carrington. Uh, we were, I don't know, I think we'd been together for about 12 months by that stage, um, but ended up looking around the corner and there was a place that we could pay off the mortgage cheaper than we could pay rent. Right. Um, so, which was quite unbelievable, you know, interest rates were, I don't know, six or seven percent, but we, were, we sort of looked at it and I think I was paying 300 bucks a week yep. you know, for a two bedroom place. and. They were just about to put it up to 320. Yeah. And I looked at another place around the corner, I could buy it for 265, and I've worked out the rates. And I thought, oh, pretty much break even here mm. for renting and owning my own place. And um, it was pretty ramshackle, but I thought, no, oh, let's do it. And um, luckily, my, my current now wife said, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, yeah. after 12 months of being together. Um, and uh, yeah, we. We legitimately, uh, 100% honest, I cracked open my money tin to put down the deposit. Right. Um, so I had a, had a money tin, you know, one of those big, uh, yeah. um, you know, money tins that you buy from Hot Dollar, and I still do them, and I have a, have a little rule for myself that I put all my $5 notes and $1 and $2 coins in them yep. when I come back from being at the pub or, you know, being at work or whatever, and it just chips up and sort of um, ended up being a couple of thousand bucks in there. Right. And, uh, we won't mention your residential address then, no, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, they just got cracked open again, uh, <laughs> to buy, this time to buy a couple of surfboards, though, so it wasn't too bad. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, so we cracked that open. My wife had a few, a bit of savings and um, pulled those things together and plonked down for a, for a place in Carrington for the massive sum of two hundred and sixty odd thousand dollars. Wow! <laughs> and the median's got to be close to six or seven hundred there now. Yeah, yeah, it's gone crazy. We uh, we we bought that, so we bought that uh, five years ago um, and did a, a full renovation. Um, I didn't get a quantity surveyor before I started that renovation, so I thought it was going to oh, cost me cost me thirty thousand dollars in my um, infinite wisdom of, of knowing everything and <laughs> yeah blew through that by a long margin yep. so um luckily had a builder that was um very accommodating um and and taught me the whole way through it uh, who i still use now and, and had a great relationship with him and, and we, we created a great property and um, just about finished it and uh my wife fell in love with our current place over in Tyres hill so we packed up and and pushed over there right so, yeah. And you, you've gone on to do a few sort of um, fixer-upper type projects. Is that a bit of a strategy for you? Look, it's sort of where I've fallen into. Um, yeah. It's not. I don't think it's intentional, but I realised the other day that every single property I've bought has been a deceased estate. So mm-hmm. um, my wife and I are definitely not against um, you know getting our hands dirty. Um, and I think that's definitely a way that you can add a huge amount of value to these places. Yeah. Um, so, but it's definitely changed. Um, the first, the first place uh, we bought, we bought a place in Mayfield um, that has is on six hundred or so square meters, and it's an old ramshackle place that we bought. Um, that's you know just rented itself out from day dot, and it's one of those things that you just forget about and, and leave it there. Yeah. Um, and didn't really have a plan, but just knew that you know we wanted some land because the place in Carrington was on ninety nine square meters. Right, uh, that's, that's May- tight. Yeah, it was very tight. The place in Mayfield is over 600. Right. Um, so. so it's an acreage in comparison. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So I thought, you know, this would be a good little place to, to go in there and maybe in, it's sort of my strategies always has been from now is, is to, to buy an old place like this um, with the ability to renovate it um, and then the option sort of probably in the next boom to, to knock down, rebuild and, and develop on that site. So yep. um, this one is, it, it, I'd be able to get three on it. Um, awesome. So currently, although I do hear that the uh, Newcastle um, uh, 
DCP is going to be changing. So right. that might not be happening anymore because I think uh, around that area there's a bit of um, uh, aggravation by the, by the uh, owners that are there now. A bit of nimbyism. carved up. You know, yeah, right. Um, and anywhere on 800 square metres and they're jamming tiny little blocks on there now. So yeah. um, I've heard that they're, they're trying to widen the minimum frontage to from 12, which is what I've got, to um, yep. out to 20. So. Yeah. But who knows? So that's sort of where my, my, my plan was to, to, to buy a place, the ability to um, renovate, rent it, um, try and get it up as close to um, uh, neutral as, as possible. Yep. Um, not there yet, not far away. Yep. You know, each year the rent ticks up a little bit, which is nice, um, hopefully. And um, yeah, that's basically been the plan and then, and then look to potentially in the, before the next boom get on there and get a DA and, and, and knock it down and awesome. put two on them and, and really just renovate finance and hold um, that's probably my rich dad poor dad yep um, mantra coming out is just hold if you don't have to sell hold yep. never, never sell so uh, that's what's happened so far and, and yeah and awesome here we are so um, also have a um, got the ability there to to help and work with uh, my mum so yep my mum looked to, uh, um, you know, get into the investment world. Um, she's retired though, so yep. we sort of looked at the ways that we can do it, and, and and I've got a couple of places with her where you know where she's able to throw up the investment funds, and, yep. and I'm able to. You've got an equity um, backer. Uh, yeah, I've got yep. the I've got the equity backer, and then the banks throw in the rest, so yeah, um, which is pretty nice, and, and that's sort of tied up in a in some family trusts that get to spit out the dividends on the back end. Yep when they get there so awesome yeah and that, once they stop losing money so yeah it's been it's been a good little um adventure it's, it's worked out well so far but i think it's a rising market in the last five years and, yeah and if you've missed in the last five years you've you've probably had to try pretty hard to do that yeah so um who knows where it's going to go from here but i'm pretty buoyant on newcastle yeah yeah, I think in, in general, Newcastle's been one of the better performing markets um, you know, over the last decade. It might be the case that we're looking at maybe single-digit growth for a little while, but eventually it's going to take another run and, and you'll, be, you'll be there ready to, to capitalise. So uh, I want to get on to the, to the legal eagle side of things. Obviously, that's your, your specialty as well. Um, I, wa- I want to sort of um, look at the, the legal traps, especially for, for property investors. Um, now, what got you in the first place into construction and, and building disputes? Oh, I'd like to say that I was guided there by <laughs> something, but it really wasn't a, wasn't a big choice. Um, I came out, I finished law school, um, I had was at a place in Carrington doing some work at my place and the wife said, all right, I'm going back to university now, time for you to get out there and, and put your law degree to use and um, just contacted a couple of friends and said, if you hear anything that we're already working, you know, if you yeah. hear anything, let me know. And um, Got lucky enough that Mike Morrissey at, at Nexus um, had just picked up a bunch of work, and he was there with with Marcus as well. And back when we were, back when there were two, and um, yep. and on we went. And so he rang me up and said, "I've got a role one day a week. Um, if if you're keen." And I had no idea what I didn't even know there was such a thing really as construction law. It, I, it's not something you learn at university. Yep. I mean, you obviously learn contracts. You know, there's construction disputes, but. Uh, in terms of a, a, specific, a specific niche area. I yep. wasn't aware of that, so yep. 
Anyway, he gave me a call and said, I've got a day a week if you're interested. And I said, okay, well, may as well. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And uh, I think I've pretty much worked full-time from that first day. So, um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's been, Here a, you are. been a great run. So I didn't really choose it, but it's something that I absolutely love. And um, I'm pretty hands-on with a lot, a lot of the um, renovations and developments and stuff that I do. Yep. love getting in there. And well, love's a strong word now. I, <laughs> but I still get in there with the paintbrush and, you know, the, the sledgehammer is probably more of my forte these yep. days. I don't mind that, knocking some things down and Shocking pulling all. walls out and, <laughs> and whatnot. But, um, yeah, so able to use that and, and then go and talk to, to my clients, the builders and the, and the, and the owners and the homeowners and, and developers and actually have a bit of that practical yep. background as well of, you know, even basic things like, you know, skirts and architraves and yep. these sort of things and actually knowing what, what things mean um, seems pretty beneficial to them but makes me actually understand what their problems are yep. in real terms. So. If you're on a conclave and someone says architraves and you're looking in the wrong direction, you, you look a little bit silly, don't you? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So. so I guess with, with any building works um, and, and where lawyers get involved is, is the building contract. Is is there a certain point where a job will have a contract or, or, or doesn't need to have a contract? Well, anything above five thousand dollars needs to have a contract. Between five and twenty, um, there's a you need to have a, a, a small contract under the Home Building Act, and above twenty, you just should have a standard um, contract. Yep. Um, look, I would generally recommend that anyone that is going into it um, just has a look on the on some of the options that are out there from the Master Builders Association, um, Housing Industry Australia, and, and Fair Trading. They all have contracts for any different sorts of um, jobs. Um, including I think the Fair Trading has specific contracts for plumbing and electrical work and so on and so forth. Yep. So, um, so really if, you, if you're going in to go and talk to a home builder and someone that's going to project manage the whole job, then be, they should just have a standard contract from the MBA or the HIA or, or Fair Trading. Yep. Uh, they might have special conditions around it. Um, but one of the other things that I guess a lot of homeowners need to also realise is um, is a lot of the issues now that are around um, owner-builder work. Yep. So owner-builders used to be able to get things like home warranty insurance. Yep. Um, so home warranty insurance is a, is a scheme that basically protects consumers from builders who um, you know, go bankrupt, die, or disappear um, in the event that there are defects at the property or that they um, fail to complete the works and, yep. and, and they need to get someone else in to do it because anyone, any builder will tell you if they come into a job that's half completed, their costs are going to be far more than what there's going to be under the contract. Yeah, because they're assuming the risk of the work that was done by the previous party, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, builders always work differently, so some of them might front-end load their contract. And so yeah. in a $200,000 contract, for example, you know, you might have paid the builder $100,000 and all he's built is the slab, for example, because he's gone out and he's, you know, getting ready to buy the frames and he's ordered the frames, he's ordered the kitchen and he's ordered those sort of things. Now, yeah. if he goes, disappears and goes bankrupt at that stage, well... You're probably not getting your frames or your kitchen delivered, yep. so that's all gone. So then another builder might come on and say to you, "Well, actually, there's still one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of work here. So that fifty thousand dollars is there going to be able to be, um, you know, hopefully going to be able to get that back from the home building compensation fund, yep. um, which is home warranty insurance." Um, and so has that changed with with owner builders now? Yeah, so owner builders used to be able to get a. Um, home warranty insurance um, up until 2014. Um, as a homeowner, you, you used to be able to go and build your own house and get home warranty insurance, which then allowed you to sell it with the um, 
you know, the condition that the consumer that was purchasing your property was able to have homeowner insurance and some sort of guarantee over it. Yep. Um, home building compensation fund. Um, they're actually run by New South Wales government, um, but that's now actually going to go back into the private sector. Right. Um, but the home building compensation fund generally, on average, uh, I don't. I, I, don't quote me, but it's between it, it pays out between two or three dollars per one dollar of revenue. Right. So okay. it's a massive loser for the New South Wales government. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the big areas that they were losing a lot of money was owner builders, um, because they were just doing work that was fairly dodgy. Yep. Um, so you know you get an owner builder and you know they don't have a lot of experience and and one of the subbies does something and they they're not sure and they're cutting corners and they're doing little bits and pieces and they're doing the electrical themselves and they're running their own pipes and, yeah what could you know, go wrong what could go wrong <laughs> but which is all good if you're going to live in there for six or seven years or, or forever yeah you know you take the own risk that's fine but a lot of what they're finding is you know people going in being owner builders and then just turning around and flipping them and, and, yep. and taking the money off the builders um but now you can't. Now you can't have home warranty insurance as, a, as an owner builder, um, which basically means if you go to sell the property, um, you don't have an insurance policy over it. So that's probably someone that's going to look at a property if it's been done by an owner builder. Yeah. Just to be aware that they don't have an insurance policy as they would over uh, from normal builders. Yeah. Um, and that's a real risk. You know, you you then have to sue the owner builder who may or may not turn out turn up um, yep. if there's something that goes wrong um, and there's no backstop there which is probably the great thing that the home warranty insurance fund does so. yeah okay so so it, for, for investors that do find that they're looking at a, a property that is um, built by a, a, an owner builder what, what's the best advice to them to, to sort of make sure that they're covering themselves yeah don't do it don't do it right it's, it's, it's that it's that hard line I think right. in my opinion um, You've got to realise, I mean, obviously, it doesn't matter if you're going into buying a, a, a property that's, and you're buying it for land value and you're getting a house for free on top of it. Obviously, sure. that's something that they're going to have to consider. But um, if, if they go into it and, the, you know, the, the housing component is a significant part of the value of the property that they're purchasing and it is done by an owner builder, yep. um, you should know that you're not going to have... Um, homeowner's warranty insurance over it. Even though you should, the home the owner builder should have got homeowner's warranty insurance from any contractor that did more than $20,000 worth of work. Right. Just doesn't, in my experience, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, very rare that a plumber who does $20,000 worth of work gives a home warranty insurance because the owner yep. builder doesn't know that they need to enforce that. Yep. Um, so that would be pretty much my rule, is, is either don't do it, or if you are going to do it, make sure you've got a very thorough home um, building inspection report. Yeah. Um, and I'm not talking about one that you go and spend 250 bucks from you know Joe Bloggs ABC building inspections, yep. which is probably fine, and they're probably fine to do, do it in most circumstances. Um, but when you're going to go into an owner builder property, definitely get a detailed report from yep. one of the from a detailed um, you know, home building. Um, expert yep. um, you know they, they might run you for a thousand dollars and you might turn around and not build it but you know you really need to be making sure that a lot of the things that you you were doing there particularly if you're going to invest in it and then rent it out are up to code yep. um, because the last thing you want to do is get in there and then your tenants turn around and say ABCD and then you've got to go fix it yep. um, so and if you do have the property built by a builder how, how long do they sort of maintain a liability for their works They've got a liability for either two or six years yep. um, under the Home um, Home Building Act. So they've got two years for 
what they call non-major defects, yep. um, and I'd, I'd call those, you know, the cracks in the architrave, the paints yep. coming off, um, those little little things that are, that are non-major. Then you've got six years for, for major defects. Um, yeah, that's a the the definition of major has not been fully fleshed out in, yep. the, in the law at this stage, um, and, and more and more will come out, and, and once they do, you sort of start being able to categorise them as you have disputes as to whether something's minor or major. Yep. Um, but they those disputes will now only just be resolved because the, the act that created this minor and major um, differential only came in in 2014. So yep. Uh, you're only really going to get those disputes starting in the end of 2016 and so they're only going to be just starting to be decided towards the end of this year yeah. and then so towards the end of this year and flowing into next year we'll start being able to get more of a definitive list of what's major and minor. Because we'll get some precedence from what makes it to the to the courts. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, most of the major things that will be covered will be things like um, you know, waterproofing, most structural damage, yeah. um, to um, internal major elements, um, I don't think you're going to get over for a you know a structural defect for a deck, for example. Yeah. It's probably not going to be classified as a major major defect. But obviously, you know, if your concrete pillars have got concrete cancer and they're going to fall over, and your second story of your house is at serious risk, sounds pretty major. Yeah, sounds pretty major. Yeah. Um, we're also covering some things like major elements of the building. So mm-hmm. if you've got, um, for example, defective tiling, but you've tiled the whole force. Um, first floor of your house, yep. and that could be classified as a major defect um, because it is a major element of the house. So it's just been yep. using those legal that legal terminology there and, and applying it to that yep. the situation you find yourself in. So let's talk about disputes, which is, I guess, your your bread and butter. Where, where does the disputes happen? Is is does it normally start with a conciliatory process? How how does it sort of start, and how can it escalate to to the point where there's a there's an order? Mm. I would say that a dispute always starts where the parties don't fully articulate their agreement at the start of a, of a front-end contract. Yep. Um, that's probably why you generally want to have a standard contract. Yep. Um, a lot of consumers don't read those. A lot of builders don't even understand how they work. Um, it's a very, you know, it's a very large issue. For example, um, things like, uh, you know, under the master builders contract, how extensions of time work, um, whether rain delays are something that are an issue, um, how variations are claimed, all those sort of things, they're all articulated very clearly in a building contract. Yep. But most of the time, two parties sign it, and the only time they'll look at the building contract if is if, if something goes wrong. Yeah, exactly. If the, if the lawyers are getting involved, which yep. is quite crazy because these building contracts are not there to ski; they're actually there to tell you how to run the job. Yeah, um, so and to protect both parties, really, aren't they? Absolutely, protect both parties. And I think, I mean, if you're an investor and you're going in there and you're doing these things, you need to be aware of what those building contracts say. You don't need a lawyer to read them. They're they're tried to be as plain English as possible. Yeah. Um, there are obviously issues that come up whether something falls into being an extension of time or a variation or, or whatnot. But yep. if the builder and the owner are both on the same page and can get together and discuss, okay, well, you know, the builder might say, this is a variation. Well, no, I don't think it's a variation because look at the plans, it's here. Yep. Um, that would resolve most of them. Um, now, in terms of the actual disputes, where, where we see most of the disputes is um, at the end of a, of a job. Right. Um, generally comes the end of time, you know, it's taken too long to build, um, yep. I'm paying too much money out of here, um, you know, to rent my other property. Yep. Um, 
uh, or there's a lot of defects. So that's the that, that, that yep. are the two issues. And often when there's a lot of defects and the builder turns around and say, well, there's all these variations that I didn't claim and I'm going to claim them now. So that's a yep. common yep. type of issue that we have um, with building disputes. Uh, so let, let, can we run that as a bit of a case study? So the, the building has gone over time. There's some defects. The builder was sitting on some variations that maybe wasn't interested in charging for, but now it's getting a little bit adversarial. He's on the front foot there. What, what's sort of the first step with that dispute and in what sort of direction does it go from there normally? Well, the, I mean, the first step is that they go to generally the Office of Fair Trading. Yeah. Um, so the Office of Fair Trading have a, a great free regime to try and resolve these before lawyers or anyone else gets involved. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely the recommendation. They'll come in there as a, a, as a you know, impartial party mm-hmm. and try and determine the dispute between, between them to come to some sort of resolution. Um, most of the home building type disputes, you're probably fighting about amounts that really the lawyer shouldn't be involved in. Yep. Um, you know, it, it, legal fees become costly, experts mm. become costly, um, and but often the issue is is the relationship is just completely broken down between the two parties at that stage, um, and that's what it, that's what every dispute comes down to is just yep. the the conversation between the parties has either stopped. Or it's just become so adversarial that neither party can deal with each other. They don't want to see each other. Yeah. Um, so, um, which I oh, I would say happens a lot more often when you have either uh, homeowners that are going to go and live in their property yep. because they're stressed about what it looks like, yep. or investors that are too emotionally tied into the property that um, that are going on. So, I mean, they're generally the two that, that kick it off. Obviously, if you've got a builder that's uh, probably not acting with as much integrity as you would like. There's obviously yep. an issue there, um, but often it's the emotions that get involved. So yep. um, that that occurs. Fair trading get involved. They'll come in and have a conciliation, and, and they'll they'll go to site most of the time, walk around, do an inspection with both parties. What are your concerns? Okay, write down those issues. Yep. Um, and then that you know they'll tell the builder, okay, you've got to complete these works by date X. Um, and they'll tell the homeowner, you've got to pay the contract sum, or I agree to these variations. And they'll try and come to an agreement. Yep. You know, homeowner or investor pays X dollars, builder does Y works, let's resolve it, and hopefully yep. that's it. And is that a, a binding agreement? or is it... It's not a binding agreement, no. Yep. I mean, it shows bad faith if you don't um, sure. act in accordance with it. Um, and it's not a binding agreement, but it's definitely something you probably want to comply with, yep. particularly as an investor when the commercial realities of it just kick in, you know, you, you just really want to be um, either getting the property built, um, finalised, and then you're selling it, yep. in which case you really don't have a huge concern unless the defects are going to decrease the value in your property because yep. the warranties go with the house, they don't go with you. So yep. the insurance policy is not with the investor, with the builder, the insurance policy is by the builder against the property. So right. if there is a defect there that you're really concerned about, um, but you know, or you're not aware of, and you think you need to know about all of them, yep. then, and and you got to sell the property. Well, you can sell the property, and if the new homeowner's got the problem, then they can still they've still got all those rights against the builder. Yep. So, yeah. So let's say we have uh, an order from from Fair Trading that's not complied with. What what's the next step from there? 
So if, if your order's not complied with by um, either party, then you go to the, the tribunal. That's the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal. Um, again, it's a, it's a um, forum where lawyers are not encouraged to be. Um, to keep the cost down and experts aren't encouraged to be either. So yep. um, at that stage they will go forward, um, the, either party commences the, um, uh, in the tribunal. Uh, if, if we use this scenario, there's some defects, the homeowner isn't happy because the builder hasn't come back and done the defects and fixed the works, yep. um, then you've got, you turn around and, and, and they'll be making a claim for, you know, I need the builder to you know, put the roof on, sheet the walls, do the plastering and install the kitchen. Yep. Um, and I want him to do it by, you know, 30 days from the date of today. And then the builder says, okay, I'm happy to do that once they pay me for, you know, the extra three rooms that I put in at the front or something along those lines. And then that will generally be held by uh, a mediator will then get involved. Similar yep. sort of thing to the tribunal, but this will actually be a conciliation. Yep. Um, and if they can resolve that, there will be actual orders that are made. And those orders actually need to be complied with. Um, and they, will, they might have things, for example, exactly the same as the fair trading builder to do this work by yep. date X and owner to pay this by date Y. Yep. And it might be contingent on different things, for example. It could be, it's whatever agreement it could be, it can end up in orders, but um, you, you know, it might be that the, the owner's got to pay half of it up front and then half of it you know, once the frame's up, for example. And then that's how it goes. And it just tries to build, get that relationship um, and if that's not complied with, um, at that stage, the homeowner, within a year of the orders being ex expiring, um, or the builder, either party, yeah. um, if, that, if the other party hasn't complied with it, they're able to then go back to the tribunal and do what they call renewal proceedings, um, which are generally shorter proceedings to determine a quantum dollar of what the damages should be for the orders that weren't complied with. Yep. Yeah. Because I guess there's a time imperative at that point. There's a project that could potentially have been dragging out for months or even years before you even get to that point. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's been some... Um, I've had some cases where uh, the property hasn't been finished for four years. Right. Um, and it's just dragged out, you know, and, and the owner's saying to the builder, can you come back and fix it? Yes, you know, or can you, can you complete it? Yes, I'm coming back. I've just, you know, the excuses go on yep. and on and on. Particularly when you're an investor, um, you might not be, you, you should be on the ball, but you know, let's say the property market's going up or yep. you know, you've got other things on your mind, you're not pushing it as hard as you can and things just drag on, drag on, and then the builder's giving excuses and um, so on and so forth. And, and then, yeah, it can be absolutely a lot of years and then it does become more and more imperative. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's basically where most of the disputes will end after that tribunal? Um, so the, once the tribunal starts, um, depending on how the dispute is and what pe what um, stage of the works are at, um, that's often when, when we'll get involved um, if the parties are unable to resolve it. Um, yep. At the Often at the mediation stage, mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes we get involved uh, prior to those things occurring if there's some significant defects or, you know, if they've gone, if the parties have gone through fair trading and the you know, the builder hasn't complied with the fair trading and the owner's asked him to come back or her back a bunch of times and they haven't come back. Often they just go, okay, I can't deal with this anymore. It's too stressful for me. Yep. I need someone to push this forward and, and make sure it's, you know, 
working as quickly as possible. And, yeah. and that's often when we'll get involved in, and, and run through that sort of process. Yeah. So. And, and say, for example, a, a standard sort of three-bedroom residential house that there's a dispute that perhaps should have been uh, should have been sorted out through conciliation but gets to the point where you're involved what what's a bit of a range of, of the legal fees that they can incur to sort of finalize this dispute, dispute you know including expert witnesses and that sort of thing um, I'm guessing that it's you mentioned before there's a huge incentive to sort it out in the beginning mm. what, what sort of dollars are we talking um, it's almost impossible to say. Yeah. Um, I will say that generally, in in my experience, the the minimum amount of time and effort for experts that you're looking for for fairly small disputes, you'd be running into you know, between thirty and fifty thousand dollars. Right. Um, and that would really be the minimum. Yeah. Um, so these things can drag on for years. Yeah. Um, and when the parties have um, a lot of ill will between each other they can drag on for many many years three four years yeah um, i've had experience in some cases so in um, excess of the value of the whole project yep, yep by I've, many multiples i mentioned as I, well I, I have i've had i've had one dispute where the value of the the legal fees and the um expert fees were seven times the value of the dispute wow right and what what went wrong in that situation? I mean, maybe not specifically the, the defect, but, but how does it get to that sort of, that just cartoonish level? Yeah. Um, honestly, it's something that you sit there and you, you don't actually realise how it gets there. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's generally between the two parties. So just there's just so much animosity there. Um, and then basically what occurs is little bits and pieces pop up that are spot fires yep. that mean that you're dealing with these spot fires around the outsides um, before you're actually getting to the nuts and bolts of a dispute um, so which is one of the one of the key reasons why when you go to when you have a building dispute you really need to go to someone that actually understands how these things work yep. um, unfortunately I've got a, a lot of experience of um, dealing with experts and lawyers who are not familiar with the uh, building world and, yeah. and don't quite understand where the commercial realities start and stop. Um, and that's just, it just becomes a huge issue. They're running very technical legal arguments to try yeah. and get out of what really is quite basic, simple outcomes. Yeah. Um, and that's really where the, where, where the costs start escalating when, when you don't have a choice but to deal with these spot fires before you actually get to the major bushfire. Yeah. Um, and that's where, where the costs really escalate. So, yeah. um, but they can come in all sorts of spheres. I, I generally say that you know, when there's a, a home building disputes are no different to major commercial building disputes. Um, yeah. There is really no difference between us arguing about you know, um, uh, a ten million dollar defects claim over a major apartment block, yeah. and a fifty thousand dollar defects claim over a home building. You know, with a mum and dad. Yeah, They're, it's the same. It's really the same amount of work. Obviously, you know, the ten million dollar block is bigger because you've got you might have fifty apartments in it, so you've got fifty yeah. fifty times that work. But a lot of the defects are replicated throughout. Sure, um, but. It's really the same issues. There's a lot of core things of who's liable, what the costs are, what's reasonable, and so on and so forth. And and if you're arguing about something about you know in the, in the fifty to one hundred thousand dollar range, uh, it often just becomes non-commercial for the lawyers to be involved because 
the outcome, which is really pushed by now by the tribunal. Finally, we've got some. Um, we, we and that's as we generally act for builders. So this, uh, they've they've amended the act to include um, section 48MA, which is. Um, under the Home Building Act, which basically means there's a preference for the builder who did the work, if they're still able to, to go back and rectify. Right. Which is a huge... It makes sense, right? It does make sense, but it's a huge <coughs> disincentive to people that are commencing proceedings against a builder who refuse to allow that builder to come back and rectify. Right. Because if you know that the end result is going to be that the builder's going to come back and do the works you really should be aiming to try and resolve that as quickly as possible. Yeah. And um, if you've got, you know, two lawyers and an expert that's involved um, right from the start that aim to get to that point as soon as possible, um, you know, you can really be resolving this for a couple of thousand dollars for, you know, basically getting into a boardroom somewhere and saying, okay, well, you know, the brickwork's defective, what are you going to do about it? Yep. Oh, well, yes, I agree it's defective and we can do these options and we can fix it. Or, you know, I've got my subby bricklayer who said he's going to come back and fix these six parts that he's issued about. And, you know, the expert can say, well, yeah, I'm happy about that because, you know, it's not a structural issue. It's just yep. what it looks like. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, you know, we'll come down and we'll rip down the front half of the house, but who cares about the little side access that you've got? No, I don't care about that either. And once you start taking those things out, you start reducing the costs. Um, and, and you can sort of resolve these things in a, in, in a matter of weeks is, yep. is, is obviously the goal. But if they don't get to that point, um, they can they can drag on for yep. months and years. Because there will be um, people that are building a, a home or an investment property that get to a point where they don't want to see that builder or any of their associates on that site again. So there's a bit of a, a disincentive to take that view that I, I just don't want to look at the guy because now we're sort of saying that, you know, the, I guess the tribunal is favouring the easy solution, which is getting the builder back on site. But in that situation where, you know, the owner can't stand to look at them, it's inevitable that that, that goes further, right? It is inevitable. Um, the tribunal can still order that the builder goes back and does work and you basically, as an owner, you then have orders against you to allow access for them to do the work. So, right. Um, which can be very, very stressful. Um, and it can... I, I haven't come across the exact circumstance where an owner would refuse a builder the ability to come back and do the rectification works after having that order. Right. But I am guaranteed that that will... <laughs> Um, that will <laughs> definitely float up in the next... Because uh, Section 48 MA only came in 2016, I believe, or 15. So that was another amendment, a recent amendment. So, yeah. um, although they were making work orders for uh, you know, a lot of period, long period before that. Yeah. Um, so it's probably it's definitely something that's going to come up where the builder says, I've tried to access on, on, on numerous amounts of time. Yeah, there's a Rottweiler in the way. and Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I've, uh, well, actually... Come to, come to think of it, I, I have got a matter at the moment which is quite um, similar to this sort of issue where our client has been saying, as a builder has been saying, I've been trying to go back there and, and they're claiming a couple hundred thousand dollars to complete the works and yeah. the builder's saying, well, you're not letting me on site, how am yeah. I going to do it? So, And I'm nervous bricklaying when there's a shotgun pointed at me. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's, you know, there, there could be some precedent that comes out of that um, in the near future where you've got a, a builder that basically says, I, I want to come and do it. I appreciate that there's a lot of animosity between the parties, but you know I'm, I can finish this work for thirty thousand dollars of my cost, and they still owe me this money. Yeah. But you're claiming a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Well, I, there's a difficult you know way to get around that, and uh, 
and that really comes to the end of the evidence of, of, of showing who's acting in good in good faith at that time. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the disputes, I, I guess it it's it's around things like extensions of time, variation, and defects. Are they probably the the three main disputes that you see? Yeah, mainly. They're, they're, they're the main main areas, particularly in home building. Yep. That, um, that are in, uh, in dispute. So obviously, you know, time is taking too long. Um, um, and, and defects are, are the two big ones that yep. that are an, an issue. An issue. Um, in in the smaller matters, obviously, you don't have the quite the you know the the small nuances that you do in a major dispute. As yep. you, know, you know, as being a QS, you would know. You know, there's no you know changing work methods, or there's no you know things like that don't really concern. If you're building a three bedroom house, you know, yep. a homeowner is probably not going to tell you to build it some way or the other. Yeah. Obviously, that dispute in major things. You know, if you've got a principal and you're building a hospital and they tell you they've got to build it this way and you yep. cost it the other way it might seem that you get the same result but it can cost twice as much because you're doing something differently yeah so those nuances and those types of disputes which are the major areas that we have disputes in in, in larger transactions yeah um they obviously don't come into the home building world so yeah great yeah yeah of course yeah. so let, let's say we're, we're looking at a dispute over extension of time so your, your standard uh master builders or hr HIA contract that's going to have a provision that says that the, the the building will be built roughly by a certain time allowing for reasonable um, rain delays or slab curing time that sort of thing what what typically goes wrong in those extension of time cases um, again it's just the um, correspondence between the parties yep. that's what goes wrong yep. um, so I, I, and it's generally the builders issue mm-hmm. um, it's not gen- generally you know lack of access for example if you're building a new home um, you know the builder might say okay well I can catch up on these days because something occurs um, for example you know the slab guy was meant to come on a Monday um, but then it rains and then you go to book him in to come back on next Monday but he's booked out and he's gone to Bali for four weeks right. and he's the only slab guy you can get. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, because you weren't aware of that um, and you just assumed that they were there, you know, if you're that type, type of builder, um, then you're out by five weeks. And yeah. You're like, oh, okay, now we've got a real big concern because you, you really, that's not, a, that's not a reasonable reason for an extension of time. But I think most people would be understanding of those sort of things. Most yep. people don't, you know, if you're building a three-bedroom home, as long as you can say to the builder, okay, well, that's an issue, but you're going to have to accelerate it at the back end. Yep. Um, obviously, that acceleration doesn't come into home building contracts, but as a QS, you, you know, you'd understand how, how those yes. sort of things happen on major projects um, where you get told to work faster and longer and long nights and so on and so forth. Um, so... Uh, but generally, yeah, it's just a it's just a matter of the of the conversation between the two parties and saying, look, this this has occurred. Here's my delay. This is the reason for delay. As long as both parties are up to date, um, yeah. And and the homeowner really has not an obligation, but really should try and be just having a, a, a good conversation with their builder or whoever it is that's undertaking these works. So, yeah. What's happening? What's the issue with the delay? Can we try and work around this? You know, yeah. for example, the homeowner might say, well, I know I've done another job with this other builder, and they use this slab guy, can we? Can you have a call to him and see if he's available? Oh, yep. Yeah, okay, I can call him. So those things can be worked out reasonably yeah. um, if both parties have a good relationship, but if neither party talks to each other, <laughs> yeah. 
That's and the builder should have a you know a critical path analysis at the beginning and a program to say this is what's going to happen. If Absolutely. they have a bit of communication, they can kind of see if, if something doesn't happen, it pushes things out. But is there is there compensation where a builder has obviously done something that slowed the progress of the property with liquidated damages at the end? Yeah. How does that sort of work if, if it's if it's sort of clear that the builder's at fault and they can't accelerate that yeah. program? Yeah, well, I mean, I, it really doesn't even make, make any difference if the builder's at fault or not um, yep. in terms of liquidated damages. If you're an investor or a homeowner or anything where you are going to be incurring costs because something is not completed at a certain date and time, um, then you should be really considering what your liquidated damages are going to be. Um, and so liquidated damages obviously occur when, um, you know, if the date for completion is 30 July um, and they finish it on the 14th of August and you've got liquidated damages of 100 bucks a day, not business days, well, then they, the builder's got to pay you 1,400 bucks. Yep. Um, so liquidated damages are generally um, need to be a, a reasonable pre-estimate of what your actual losses are. Yep. So, so if you're renting a property, say, and you're wanting to move into this place, you have to continue renting so something reasonable might be what you would have to pay in rent. Is that yeah, fair? absolutely, plus your interest costs. Yep. Um, so a liquidated damages clause can be completely cut out of a contract um, if it's unreasonable. So if, you've, if you're building a $300,000 house um, and you're renting a house for 200 bucks a week down the road or you're not renting at all but your yep. interest costs are 400 bucks a week and you put $5,000 a week in there as the liquidated damages, yep. it's not going to fly in the court because yep. it's just not a reasonable pre-estimate of your loss. Um, so, so you need to be reasonable um, and, and put it in there for what actually would be what you think your costs are. Now it can be on the higher end, yep. um, it doesn't need to be exactly what your costs are, you don't need to sit down and work it out, but you should have a reasonable idea of what those costs are. You know, if you're a, for example, if you're, um, you're going to move in or you're going to lease it out, then you know, you've got the, lo the loss of rent that you're going to have over those properties, that might be more than the interest costs that you're building for the for the place, so yeah. um, just have a think about those. Um, and obviously, and generally, what occurs is builders don't want liquidated damages, yep. obviously, because they <laughs> that's a that's something hanging over their head. Yep. Um, but at the same time, if you enforce and want liquidated damages, which is an entirely reasonable position, and the MBA, the HIA, make provisions for it. Is that yeah. basically just a, a blank line to say this is what the liquidated damages are priced at? Yeah, exactly. So the. Um, the MBA contract and the HIA contract have the standard contract terms and conditions, um, yep. and on the back of it they have a schedule. Um, the schedule is really the only thing you need to um, talk about with your builder, um, and that'll have your liquidated damages, that'll have your contract price, who the owner is, yep. um, so on and so forth, and those sort of things, you know, who the owner is is critical. You yep. know, they need to, uh, mum and dad investors need to make sure that they're actually, from a tax perspective, putting yeah, yeah, yeah. the correct owner is in those sort of um, circumstances. So. You've got your liquidated damages, you should just put that in there as, as what your actual liquidated damages are. Yep. Um, but what you absolutely should expect is that you get a corresponding similar delay damages claim. Right. Now, delay damages are the reverse of liquidated damages and they fall into the characterisation where you, where the builder suffers delay because of something that you did or, or also rain delays and things yep. like that, things that they can't control. They're generally excluded. Uh, but they builders can try and get them in there. Yeah. Um, so, if, so say for example, I'm building a place and I'm supplier supplying the tiling 
and all the PC items, but I couldn't make up my mind whether I want Melee or Riston that doesn't arrive to site in time. That's delayed the, the builder, so that's what you're talking about there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, both parties need to put on notice the other party that they're making these delay and liquidated damages claims, yeah. um, but that's absolutely a critical thing. Um, now, delay damages for installation of PC items for a dishwasher, etc. Um, things that won't um, shouldn't really hold up the uh, completion of the works yep. probably aren't going to fly for delay damages. But right. if you're the supplier of the tiles, yep. um, for example, that everything that needs to be put on the showers and all those things finished, um, and you delay them by two weeks, um, and like you say, the critical path, if you're talking about delay and um, liquidated damages to bring you back to that critical path, if the builder and you and the owner sit down and actually work out what the critical path is, very unlikely, yep. I, and I very rarely <laughs> yeah. see it in, that, in a home building issue, but it's, it's a quite simple process and builders really should be um, taking the time to sit down and figure out what a critical path is and how it works, yep. um, because they've got it in their head. They know yep. that build a slab, put the brickwork up, build a framing, electrical, plumbing, so on so forth, all the plumbing's on before the slab, but um, so you sit down and work those things out and you can figure out what, what the changes are now. You know, if you're two weeks later on supplying the tiles um, and that's the only thing that's holding up OC because um, everything else has been done, well, yep. the builder can say, well, you know, I've still been here, my delay damages are X dollars. Yep. Um, so that's probably, even, the, even that is a small case of, of, of occurring because, yep. you know, the builder should be able to limit their losses by going getting the tile to do the other work. Yep. Um, but if the tile is turning up to site every day, because you've been promising him to that the tiles are going to be there. Yep. Um, well, you know he's losing a day of work, so that's traders are expensive. It's that's reasonable that there's a, a loss, day, isn't so it? Yeah. It could that could be a loss, five hundred bucks a day, if that's what the delayed damages are um, are there. Yeah. Now, if you don't have liquidated da liquidated and delayed damages, um, and the, um, uh, the there's a bit of case law around the fact that it's uh, nil or zero or not applicable, yep. um, and I won't go into, into too much detail here, but um, if, you, if delay damages are not applicable, then just general damages apply, yep. um, and that's far more um, scary than, um, than liquidated or delay damages in, in my experience. Liquidated and delay damages are great because you're not fighting about the quantum, you're just fighting about the time and how and what occurred. Yep. General damages, you're fighting about what the actual quantum is, so, you know, if, if Let's use the tiling for example. The yep. tile has been rocking out. If you got delay damages of a hundred bucks a day, well, you pay them a hundred bucks a day. Yep. But if they got delay, if they if delay <coughs> damages are not applicable under the contract, for example, um, that means general damages apply. If the tile is going there every day, and then the um, you know you've got to put a project manager on site each day to go and project manage that guy, and you're trying to order you know the the fit outs items. Yep. Your your, your general damages can be far more than a hundred bucks a day. So. Yeah. Yeah. So we've um, we've been roaring through time, and I just wanted to, to ask specifically, just b before we forget, um, with with contracts for construction works, there's there's different ways that a builder will be paid, whether it be um, progress claims, which is typical of, of maybe larger developments, or perhaps milestone payments, which may be a little bit. Uh, typical of the smaller projects and you mentioned before about you know front loading so builders will want to get as much money as they can at the start of the construction because that'll help them finance you know purchasing the windows or, or whatever they need to and not carrying that cost themselves 
what what is the the norm in say a, a an MBA or a HIA um, contract, and and how can people get into trouble with the way that those payments are written into the contract? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess using your terminology, they are generally milestone payments, but yep. I think the MBA actually calls them progress payments within the right. within their contract, so they are um, a little bit different. Um, but yeah, generally milestone payments is the way that they do it. Um, some builders just go very simple and. Just say, you know, 10, 20, 20, 20, 10. Yep. Um, and that's it. And it's, you know, 10 for deposit, 20 for slab, 20 for framing, 20 for roof, yep. 20 for fit out, 10 for finish. So a milestone is basically, uh, uh, we stand back and we can say, all right, we've done the timber frame. So yep. we've reached that milestone. So then the owner is required to finance whatever the value in the contract was for that milestone. Is that yep. right? That's it. That's correct. That's correct. So you can have you can have it that way, um, or you can have uh, progress payments on a monthly basis, for example, um, that gets on the bigger developments that then gets obviously uh, valued by QS that comes in and says, oh, well, you've done $100,000 worth of work and here's your certificate and take that to the bank and off yep. they go. So, you know, if you're a, if you're a uh, yeah, using that, that mum and dad terminology yep. and you're doing a five townhouse development, uh, you'd probably be looking at progress payments and you'd definitely be wanting to get a QS yep. out there and your bank would be... They would require that, yeah, because yeah, so. they're not experts themselves. No, they're not. They're not. So, you know, the builder would be saying, you're only 120 and the QS might say... You've only done ninety thousand dollars worth of work, and you're not claiming for these because they're not on site. Yep. Uh, and on they go. Yep. Um, for milestone payments, you know, if you're an investor, obviously interstate or something like that, can yep. be difficult to get on site and having a look mm. and see what's going on. But if you are that sort of investor um, uh, and you're doing those sort of works, then try and figure out a guy or a girl that can jump up there and have a look. You yep. know, that could be a QS, a building inspector, anyone. You know, yep. pay them a couple hundred bucks to yep. walk out there when you get the claim and say, look, I've had a dispute where half of the contracts some have been paid and they went outside and hadn't even started being built. Mm. It's like, whoa, yeah. you know, pay someone a thousand bucks for the whole thing to walk, literally walk out and say, yeah, frames are done, frames yeah. are up, I can see them. You don't yeah, or if you're going to sell it, ask the real estate agent to do it to get the listing or the property manager that's going to rent it. I'm sure they'll be happy to drive by, take a photo and, and flick it through if they know they're going to get the management, right? Absolutely. Sounds a bit silly. Absolutely. So, you know, there's, uh, just using those, you know, that practical standpoint is just is so valuable. Yeah. Um, and it just makes complete sense if, if you're going to go down that uh, milestone payment path to actually yeah. go out there on site and have a look and see what they're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, if your builder's... Most builders these days on, on bigger projects probably won't just have five. They generally try and step them out a little bit more. Yep. Um, and as an owner or an investor, you can definitely sit down and jump on um, on some on Google and figure out some good milestone payments for houses and, and step them out for 10 stages and actually you know, sit down with your builder and hey, say, okay, let's have a chat about breaking these stages up a little bit yep. so you're not ahead and you're not behind and you know the value of the works is corresponding with what's occurring so yeah so milestone payments and and where they sort of land and what the percentages are they're not normally a problem for a construction project as long as you know that that's what they've done or, or is it does it really just pop up as an issue if that builder sort of disappears or dies and they have front loaded it? Is that the only real concern with yeah, milestone that's, payments? That's really the only um, concern with milestone payments. I mean, at the end of the day, if you pay your builder five hundred thousand dollars to put the slab down and that's the contract price, but then they deliver you the fully 
completed home for five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. No issue. You pay yep. for what you've got for, and that's the contract price. Um, bit different though if you've paid five hundred thousand dollars and the builder just you know flies away to Bali for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, and you're sitting there going, um, okay, and then then you're having a fight with the insurance company. Hopefully, if yep. they're there. Um, to try and recoup your money and get the rest of the, the funds paid. And, and uh, yeah, I don't think the insurance company is going to be too keen to say, well, you know, that contract's just ridiculous and yep. you're not going to uphold it and you shouldn't have paid that much money and you really could be in trouble there. Yeah. What about, say, uh, an investor that's just doing a bathroom, kitchen renovation or an extension? I'm guessing that these there's not enough value to justify coming and seeing yourself unless it goes into the toilet for some reason. What, what, what's your sort of advice for, for people to protect themselves with that? Um, same, same things, go into the MBA, the HIA, make sure you've got a, um, a contract, um, yep. minor works contracts, <coughs> um, will be fine. Um, but make sure it's all you know articulated properly and there's an agreement there. I mean, they don't have to be these standard agreements, but you know, keep, keep it, have an idea of what the builder or the subby or you know, the tiler or the um, chippy's gonna actually charge you when and why and how, yep. and what rates he's going to do it on. Um, and perhaps of, don't do it over a handshake. Yeah, definitely, I would definitely don't do it over a handshake. I mean, an email correspondence is fine. Yep. Uh, it's not great, it's not always service, but it's evidence. Um, yep. Stuff that you can rely upon if things do go badly. Um, and so just articulate that. And you know, uh, one thing I would recommend is generally try to not engage people on hourly rates. Right. Um, as silly as that sounds because I charge it on hourly rate <laughs> right. um, but hourly rates are very difficult to sort of you know govern um, how do you do it if you're not there on site all the day how, how do you know that the tile has been there for 80 hours yeah. um, so whereas I mean tiles are a specific example where they generally would just work on a square metre rate um, yeah. and charge you whatever they charge you and if you want you can go in there and measure up your square metre rate it's pretty easy yeah. you know, get a tape measure out wall floor floor done yeah. Um, so, you know, definitely try and, and, and talk to those sort of things. But have just try and articulate it. Just be upfront. Yep. Um, and if you've got people that aren't willing to be upfront, then I generally would say don't don't involve yourself with them. There's plenty yep. of other good, reputable, great builders. I mean, I've got you know builder clients that I've been with, you know, that have been working for forty years. Right. Never had an issue. Yeah. You know, because they sold them, they talk about all these things upfront. You know, here's an issue. They might be more expensive, but. They're not claiming a bunch of variations on the back end for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, they actually know how to do the work. So the guys that have been around for 20 years and have got a good name, they've got a good name for a reason. Yeah. Um, it's not because they're just ripping everyone off and everyone um, hasn't been keeping up to date with them. Yeah. It's because they're doing their job properly and they're, you know, what they say is what you get. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you if you don't have a minor works contract or a smaller contract, just you know make sure you got it in an email. Yeah. You know, talk to the tiler. Cool, mate. You know, you're 60 bucks a square meter. I measure it as 20 bucks, 20 square meters bathroom. Do you agree? Yeah, I've gone in and measured it. I think it's 22. Cool, no problem. That means it's whatever that is. It sounds simple, but it's a common sense way to protect yeah, yourself, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, it's a common sense way to protect yourself. So, um, you know, just take a bit of time to sit down and, and, and send an email and confirm these things, and, and people won't get themselves out of um, out of joint if the position and the, and the playing field is. is well articulated between the parties. Yeah, and my last question was was going to be, what's your best best advice uh, for for property investors when they're dealing with with construction projects or renovations? But it sounds like that might be it. Is is get the documentation? Yeah, absolutely. Get the documentation. Um, it's it's critical to 
um, have a have full and frank discussions up front with um, you know the builders and the uh, and whoever it is that you're engaging. Um, make sure you're all on the pl same playing field, um, and, and keep the channels of communication there as open as possible. Um, you know, try and make sure. And I guess one of the things that I think for consumers is to realise that if you walk in halfway, you've got to realise. You know, walking into open heart surgery halfway through is is murder. Yeah. And often you've got to, unless you've got. If you're not a building expert or you know someone that actually knows what they're looking at, a lot of the times when you're going in there and telling someone that there's all these issues, they're not. They're things that are going to be resolved because someone's undertaking works in a different manner. Yep. Um, and while those things might be you know issues in in, in, the, in future, if you're not a building expert and you don't know what you're looking at, really either go away and get a building expert yep. or just realise that you're walking into something that's half finished and once it's finished it, it might be okay yep. so particularly if you're having to go and sell it um, yep. yeah awesome well uh, how do people get in touch with you Hamish heaven forbid they, they need to <laughs> uh, well I'm on Nexus uh, at Nexus Lawyers at nexuslawyers.com.au um, cool my email address is hg at nexuslawyers.com.au and yeah, happy for people to give me a call and, and run through it and have a chat. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Cheers.